I think what we've really come to realize is that what we want is we want people who are enthusiastic in and about their work. We want people who bring the kind of energy to their work that we always hear in management and business circles. Like, you know, we want somebody who's accountable. We want somebody who brings empowerment to the job. We want somebody who develops that owner's mindset, right? That's what we think of when we think of the ideal employee. Hello, Positive Leaders. Thanks for joining us today. You are listening to the Positive Leadership Podcast with Andrea Crabtree and David Liss, a podcast for everything a veterinary manager needs to know to get the job done. We've been there and we know how hard it is and are here to help share our knowledge and expertise to elevate you. I'm Andrea Crabtree, co-founder of Positive Leadership Podcast, owner of FurPause Consulting, a certified veterinary practice manager, and HR certified professional. And I'm David Liss, co-founder of the Positive Leadership Podcast. I'm also a certified veterinary practice manager, hold an MBA, and I'm a registered veterinary technician. And this podcast is for you, the veterinary practice manager, supervisor, leader. We want to elevate you by equipping you with relevant content, material, guidelines, instruction, feedback, and pro tricks and tips. We will deliver real life experience along with our super smart guests that will get you through the obstacles that you're facing today with some bloopers and blunders along the way to remind you that you're not alone. FurPaws Consulting has deep expertise in helping veterinary practices reach their full potential for all types of practices, whether specialty, emergency, or general practice, by working alongside the practice owner and manager. Are you a practice owner or practice manager with a challenge and not enough bandwidth to tackle it? Reach out to me, Andrea Crabtree, owner of FurPaws Consulting, with the question that keeps you up at night. I'm able to provide expertise and insight to navigate those tricky obstacles. Find my info in the show notes. Email me at andrea at furpaws.us or check out my website at www.furpawsconsulting.com. Hello, positive leaders. Oh my gosh, we are so excited to be back with you again. And we are so excited to welcome Josh Weissman for the second time on Pod. Josh is the founder and lead positive change agent at Flourish Veterinary Consulting. And he holds a degree, which I'm going to use the initials of, and then he will tell us all about it. The MAP PCP, MAP PCP degree. So Josh, you know, you've been on the pod, you know how it works. We don't read a stuffy bio. Some of our listeners, it may be the first time they've met you. So tell us all about yourself. Cannot wait. Welcome back. Awesome. Thanks for having me back. You know, I'm always impressed when somebody spends time with me listening to my opinions and views and then says, tell me more. I'm not sure if that speaks to your psychosis or my own, but I'm grateful to be here again. Tell you all about me. Let's see here. I am a soccer-playing, beekeeping, cookie-eating, occasionally weightlifting, positive leadership-obsessed human being. Does that help? Perfect. That sounds like you. you (laughs) (laughs) What does the MAP PCP degree, what does that stand for? Yeah. So it is Master's in Applied Positive Psychology and Coaching Psychology. Ooh, very cool. Well, we are going to dig into all of that and more on the pod. Y'all better buckle up and pull over if you're driving because Josh has some freaking mic drops. I cannot wait to get in here. So 
also before we start, what's on your uh, Audible these days or book or podcast or a course you've come across in the last since we've talked to you that you're just like, holy crap, everybody needs to read this now. Yeah. So I'm looking like on my desk and around here, I have I have a really great habit of like buying books and reading chunks and sections at a time and then buying another book and moving on to that one and kind of, you know, bouncing back and forth. So on my desk right now to the right, I've got Inclusify by uh, Stephanie K. Johnson, which is an absolutely amazing book. Stephanie Johnson is a PhD. I can't remember where she's at now. She was at the Leeds business school here in Colorado, the University of Colorado, really, really interested in the idea of inclusivity, you know, DEI at work. But she sort of looks at it through the prism of that funny, awkward space between belongingness and uniqueness, you know, because belongingness is that feeling of fitting in, right? And uniqueness is that feeling unique and special, feeling valued for the individual traits and strengths and characteristics that you bring to the table. And those two things can kind of feel at odds with each other. And so her book is on some of the science behind how do we build truly inclusive environments that allow people to feel as if they belong and unique at the same time. Really interesting stuff. So I guess that's probably the quickest answer to that question. Thanks for asking. And Josh, you said it was Inclusify? Inclusify, yeah. I-N-C-L-U-S-I-F-Y. The power of that uniqueness. That is going on my list. Yeah, that's- yeah. yeah. It's, right. it's really yeah. great stuff. She's pretty amazing. Josh, I'd love to talk to you a little bit about leadership. Of course, I think we all kind of geek out in that realm, but specifically leadership in the 21st century. Mm. I feel like our leadership today is completely different than how it's been in the past, especially post-pandemic and really specifically in the veterinary space where we have, and I know other businesses, you know, struggle with employee turnover and not finding enough staffing right now, but specifically in our profession where we have licensed professionals, we have very key people that need to be in key places with key skill sets. How would you define leadership in the 21st century, specifically in the veterinary space? Yeah. What a wonderful question, Andrea. You know, I spent a lot of time thinking about leadership for a whole wide variety of reasons, in part because I've been in leadership roles for a number of years in the veterinary space and because I failed as a leader. And often in academic circles, they talk about research as me-search, you know, and, and I've really been on a mission for the last few years to discover what quality leadership really is and what does that mean and what are the outcomes thereof and what are the antecedents that go into that? How do, how do we become that kind of a leader? When I think of leadership in the 21st century, I'm really driven by this idea now that I think we've spent a lot of time in the post-industrial age really sort of looking at work as something that we survive. Work is something that, you know, it's a necessity to make ends meet, to pay the bills, to maybe, you know, bias that vacation or contribute to our retirement so that we can finally do the fun things on the weekend or after I retire. So work is something we tolerate, we get through. I just don't think that's really the way of the world anymore. I don't think that's what people ever really wanted. I think that because of societal pressures, we sort of tolerated that and we put up with it for a long time and maybe even used it as a badge of honor. But I really do believe that if we're going to spend 30 to 40% of our adult lives somewhere doing something around this idea of work, maybe, wild as it may seem, maybe that should be something that 
we don't just survive, but that actually contributes to our sense of thriving. Maybe work should be something that actually adds to our life, increases our sense of fulfillment, accomplishment, achievement, and growth, and actually is a source of well-being instead of something we get through to get to the good stuff. So I think that leadership in the 21st century is about how do we create environments that contribute to that, that make mm -hmm. work and the purpose of work, the outcomes that we're after with work, something that adds to people's sense of thriving, fulfillment, and achievement, instead of something that they just begrudgingly get through so that we can make a living. Wow. I love that, right? <laughs> we have to just like take a minute and kind of process on that. that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, it makes me think about, so I, I love what you said, and I want to dig in a little bit more into leadership, what it looks like these days. And I think mm. you just did an amazing job of setting this up. So when I think about, as you said, kind of, I guess, you know, post-industrial, but there's got to be a term for what has happened in the last, I mean, it's probably yeah. 15, 20 years, but it's now become more mainstream around the work-life balance, work-life integration stuff versus the yeah. idea of what you talked about, which is like work-life, you know, separation and struggle. So that leadership style, which we can use like Henry Ford as an example, right? Get people to do the exact same thing in a cog-like manner. You get yep. efficiencies. It's highly profitable. Command yeah. and control leadership, right? So yes. here is the policy. You never deviate from the policy. How dare you have a thought that the policy isn't correct? You just do what you do. And mm -hmm. leaders are rewarded for that. Workers are you know, rewarded for following the rules exactly correctly, punished if they have any thoughts or outside of that. I don't want to judge that that was a leadership style for a long, long, long time. And, yep. you know, people had lives, people had kids, people had retirement accounts, like it was what it was. But as you said, we're probably in a different phase. So what makes a successful leader now? So I think I loved how you teed us up for like, what leadership mm -hmm. is, right? It functions to essentially, as you said, allow people to, you know, have their cake and eat it too, right? To have their life, <laughs> have their work and make them better people. So what does yeah. a leader, what does a successful leader, what do they model now that we're moving, or I should say, well, we are moving away from this command and control kind of structure. Yeah. I think if I had to sort of define what makes for a successful leader, I'd probably have to put a little bit of thought into it. I don't know that we can come up with that, you know, kind of like signature statement, that that single like nugget that really fully captures it. But I think I think this will kind of get to what it sounds like you're looking for, David. I think that a successful leader in the 21st century in particular, in our profession for sure, is somebody who, you know, cultivates an environment that maximizes the potential for people to be vitalized in and through their work. And the result of that is that people do better work. You know, productivity, efficiency, income generation, profitability, retention, job satisfaction, all of those things are lagging mm -hmm. indicators. They are the result of the mm -hmm. environmental influences that we go through day to day. Mm -hmm. So a high quality, successful leader is somebody who measures those results, but is influencing the antecedents that contribute to those results by creating an environment that makes those results significantly more likely to occur in a natural way. Mm, commitment, engagement, like there, we could go on and on and on about all of yeah. the new inputs versus the kind of, I guess, or outputs, I should say, the prior outputs, you could profit, net income, margin, like payroll percent, like all those things were more command and control structure. And yeah. now all of the things that you just mentioned, I think can actually 
those are outputs, but also could be inputs to the PNL, right? Yes. It kind of flows through that. So awesome. Oh, 100%. Thank you. That's a great yeah. way to frame it. You know, if I can expand on that a little bit, when I think of like that Tayloristic kind of command and control approach, the challenge with that kind of an approach that we understand now, we, I don't know that we always did. I think there's, you know, a hundred years of social science that's really helped us kind of understand these things with a lot more depth. That kind of approach is it's got limited levers. I mean, the levers really are just like applying pressure to the system. If the outcomes that I'm measuring that are important to me are not occurring, then I apply more pressure to the system rewards, punishments, you know, leaning on people's sense of guilt or responsibility. These are limited levers that are all, uh, you know, kind of they're pressure levers and they're force levers. They're external levers. They're the kind of levers that say like, you're not going to, or you're incapable of, or you won't do what I need you to do unless I push you or force you or coerce you to do it. What we know now is that just doesn't result in the kind of motivation that we're looking for. That doesn't result in an energized system. That results in an avoidant system. I am avoiding punishment. I am avoiding reproach. I am avoiding retribution. I am avoiding the risk to my job and to my livelihood. And avoidance only gets you so far. It only creates so much energy and enthusiasm. I think what we've really come to realize is that what we want is we want people who are enthusiastic in and about their work. We want people who bring the kind of energy to their work that we always hear in management and business circles. Like, you know, we want somebody who's accountable. We want somebody who brings empowerment to the job. We want somebody who develops that owner's mindset, right? That's what we think of when we think of the ideal employee. None of those things happen because of external pressures. All of those things happen because we have internalized something. We have decided for ourselves, in and of ourselves, that this is important and valuable to me, and I'm going to give it my all. As a leader, I cannot force somebody to feel something internally. I just can't. There's not a lever or pressure or input that I can put into the system that will make somebody feel the same way about the work that I do. What I can do is, is I can enable that. I can look at what are the things that seem to contribute to or allow people to internalize things? What are the things that get people like genuinely excited, enthusiastic? What are the things that seem to, you know, when they combine or are put into place, people get just like really energized and excited about things. How do I make sure that there's as much of those things as possible in this workplace so that the people that work here are far more likely to feel that way? And I think all that ties back to. Josh, when you said at the get-go, like, we're not going to work to survive anymore. Yeah. We're going to work to thrive. I and there's yeah. that key turning point where all of that comes into very basic surviving versus thriving. Yep. Yeah. 100%. Totally agree. Yeah. So I'm really interested. What I've become very interested in in the last five years is not about like, how do I hold people accountable more? How do I, you know, get people to do more with less? How do I improve efficiencies? And, you know, for example, as a consulting firm, when we work with practices, I never once look at their PL. I have no idea what their balance sheet is like. We don't really talk to them about profit centers and, you know, work streams and the operational stuff. What we look at is, we know that these are the variables that seem to create energy, enthusiasm, and vitality amongst human beings in a workplace context. What are we doing to make sure those variables are in place here? 
Yeah. And I would say that when you allow that to happen organically and when you cultivate culture, that that happened, the P&L part, the financial part, that all comes secondary to that. Right? Yes. 100% where you're going to find those results. Like I don't even yeah. need to measure it. It's just going to come. Like, don't worry. Just trust me. Once you work on this other part right here and cultivate you know, the culture into the area that you're looking towards to thrive, then that part just comes organically. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I totally agree. And Andrea, just to be clear, like I would never tell a business owner or, you know, a practice manager, don't look at your PL, don't worry about your chart of account. Yeah, like, right. I, would, I would never <laughs> just ever burn it. Yeah, right. I mean, d- don't get me wrong. It would be wonderful if we never had to like bury our heads in the financials. Those kinds of metrics, they're important. KPIs are important. We need to know what the outcomes are, what the results are. I mean, we are after results. I think what we just need to do is we sort of need to retrain ourselves or develop a different mindset that they are exactly that results. Results are not the things that you change. It's the things that contribute to the results that lead up to the results. You know, if you're, I don't know, maybe you're a a runner, a competitive runner, and you're running 5Ks and, you know, you go and run a 5K in 30 minutes and you're like, "Mm, you know what? That's actually not really what I want. I was really hoping for 28 minutes. You don't just say, okay, the next time I'm going to run 28 minutes. You think about what are the things that contributed to you only running 30 minutes? What are the things that need to change to make it more likely that you'll run it in 28 minutes? How can I change those things? That's what we need to start doing. Yeah, we need obstacles and yeah. Exactly. We got to start thinking about the things. And and it's very, very clear when you leverage only external pressures to try and change the results, it is self-limiting. And it's self-limiting in a way that, uh, frankly, our profession cannot cope with any longer. Command and control, those kinds of approaches, whether you're doing it intentionally because that's how you believe or you're doing it unintentionally because you don't know any other way, command and control results in attrition period. People will not continue in that environment, especially in this day and age. And I'm telling you, we all know this, veterinarians, veterinary technicians, CSRs, kennel tech, they're not growing on trees. They're just not. And so if we keep going about it the way we've been going about it, we're just going to run out of talent. And there's not going to be anybody to work in our practices yeah. anymore. Leave the profession, right? And, yep. and with that, I want to segue into something that I have a feeling you're going to just geek out on here with me because this is your jam. But so when we talk about this job satisfaction mm. and an employee's commitment to stay in the company and these, you know, external levers, right? Like, let's talk a little bit about that because I always have my passion is employees are our most valuable asset, no matter what our employees make our business. And with the employment, the way it is right now, very hard to find talent. And like you're saying, like they don't grow on trees. And so you better keep the ones you have with some employee, you know, commitment to the organization and, and job satisfaction. So let's talk about your survey. Let's get into that. Tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. So a little bit of backstory to kind of set this up. You know, when I went back to school and started learning about applied positive psychology in particular, so applied positive psychology is really the scientific area of scientific study that looks at what are the variables that seem to, you know, contribute to or add to a life worth living? Like, what are the things that actually bring about psychological well-being in a state of like feeling like I'm doing my best, I'm at my best, I'm approaching my full potential, those kinds of things. As I started to really get into that and then other areas, there's, uh, you know, areas of study like positive organizational scholarship, which sort of applies those kinds of lessons in the workplace specifically. 
industrial organizational psychology, organizational behavior, all these kinds of things that really look at what are the things that seem to add to all of those metrics that you just said? Employee commitment and engagement, longevity, vitality at work, job satisfaction, workplace well-being. And I started to see what looked to me like common threads, four in particular. And so we started to develop, through Flourish, we started to develop a framework around that. I actually just four weeks ago finished the manuscript for a book on this framework that's coming out next year through <laughs> AHA. Yeah, I'm super that's excited. So cool. um, it's, yeah, it's now in the production phase. We're you know typesetting all that kind of stuff. I'm super, super... There's going to be an audio book too, which I'm really pretty delighted for. So, uh, you know, we came up with this framework, we call it the four P's of positive leadership. We sort of, you know, it's a little bit kitschy, but we found a way to make these four pillars show up as words and phrases to start with the letter P. And so essentially what we found is that at least from the research, at least from all of the stuff, the literature that we had looked at, that when team members feel like they've got a seat at the table, they've got a voice, and they're able to share that voice without risk of retribution or punishment, know that they're going to be heard and seen for who they are. When team members feel like they're making a positive contribution in a meaningful way, that they're working in an environment where they feel as if they actually matter, and that the work that they do each and every day matters. When team members feel like they are reaching toward their potential, they're developing professionally, they have a clear path and a sense of empowerment to get things done each and every day. And when team members feel cared for, they feel like the people in charge, the people that are running things and the team around them actually genuinely care about them and care about their success. When those things are in place, it seems like, or at least the research suggested, those kinds of people will be thriving in that environment. So we got really curious about, okay, this is what all of this science says, but none of this research has been done in veterinary medicine. Let's see if it applies here. Let's see, does leadership actually influence those things? If people believe that their leaders behave in a way that maximize those four pillars, psychological safety, purpose, path, and partnership. That's what we call them. If a veterinary technician or an associate veterinarian or a kennel tech or a receptionist or a lead or supervisor or a practice manager feel like the leaders who I report to behave in a way that maximize these four pillars, Will those people also say, I am happy to be working here. I feel very committed to this workplace. I am experiencing well-being at work. And you know what? I don't want to find another job because I want to stay here. So we put together a survey tool to measure that. Now, all of those outcomes, all of those results, there are validated tools to measure that. So we pulled from the literature and we used you know, a validated single item job satisfaction measurement tool. We have a tool to measure what we call organizational commitment. We've got a tool to measure what we call turnover intention. So for example, one of the questions that we asked on our survey was, how often do you consider quitting your job at your current practice? And the options that they could have responded were never, rarely, sometimes, often, or all the time, five-point scale. So we put all these together, and then we have our own 16-question assessment tool that we use in our consulting to measure the four P's of positive leadership or the four P's of positive culture in a workplace. In this particular survey, we asked people who report to somebody. So if you work 
in a veterinary practice anywhere in the world, by the way, although 94% of our responses were from the US. If you work in a veterinary practice and you have a boss, so you're not the hospital owner, you report to somebody, you can take the survey. We got almost 750 responses. 597 of them completed the entire survey. 597 responses that included almost 100 associate veterinarians, around 220 veterinary technicians. We had practice managers. We had receptionists. We had tech assistants. We had kennel techs. We had people from general practice, specialty, and emergency. We had 76 large animal responses. We had people from mixed animal practice, from exotics practice. And we just asked them, answer questions like this. In my hospital, leadership makes it easy to discuss difficult and sensitive topics. That's a measure of psychological safety. We had 16 of those questions, and then we asked them to answer questions like the one I shared before. How often do you think about quitting your job? We also asked them to answer, how often do you consider leaving the profession entirely? We asked them to rate how satisfied and happy they were with where they worked. We asked them to self-report their own subjective state of well-being. And what we found in our survey was that leadership makes a big difference in veterinary medicine. Wow. I mean, that is an incredible yeah, piece huge. of work, Josh. Yeah. And, and it's so different than what we talk about. So in the profession, when we talk about, when we go to CE conferences, right, and you talk about studies, it's going to be such and such dog got this kind of fluid or that kind of fluid and it did better. And then when we think of studies in the leadership realm, it's always non-veterinary, right? So we pull yeah. from SHRM or, you know, PRA or whatever, all these different organizations, wherever it might be. And I'm sure you had to use some of that as your foundation, but now you're actually building some literature that is veterinary leadership based, yeah. which is pretty freaking cool, man. That is awesome. Thanks. So we cannot wait for that stuff to come out for AHA. Yeah, fantastic very, very cool. job. So I wanted to follow up on something you said, and you know, you didn't use the buzzword, but I think you hinted <laughs> at it, which is psychological safety. And when you mention something to a manager about safety, if you say safety, what do they first think of? There's four letters, O-A-S-H-A, right? Like that yeah. is the first yeah. thing they go to. Yeah. And we talk about physical safety because pre-OSHA and probably still to this day, there are absolutely situations where employees are in physically unsafe situations, right? And so OSHA's job is like, you know, to make sure that employees are physically safe. But we have realized over the past however many years that there's, you know, there's a heart, there's, there's hearts and minds, right? And so the mind part has been forgotten. And so this buzzword, and I'm not using that as a negative it's, or pejorative, it's just psychological safety has emerged yeah. in, you know, this idea of like understanding, as you talked about, if you pressure the system, i.e. you <laughs> take a vice and squeeze it down onto an employee, that yeah. they will probably not feel safe, feel safe, not be safe, right? But feel safe to speak up about, oh, I don't know, everything else that the manager might need to know about, like HR issues, physical safety issues, productivity yep. issues, you yep. know, all the all the things. And so, you know, so I, so you hinted at that in your previous, you know, what you were discussing. So when we think of a safe workplace, we think of this idea of, you know, physical safety, but what is psychological safety in the workplace and how can managers understand what it is, be attuned to it and develop and cultivate it in their teams? Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. That that happens to be an area. I mean, it's it, there's a reason why it's the first of the four Ps in our in our pillar in our framework because it's something that we're really really passionate about at Flourish. Psychological safety. So the academic definition of psychological safety is that it's a team member's belief 
within a work environment, that that environment is safe for interpersonal risk taking. So what does that mean? <laughs> How could we say that in a way that's actually a bit approachable and maybe resonates with us? Well, I'll put it to you this way. It is not the natural normal state for a human being, any human being, you or I, to go into a high stakes environment and be actively critical. So for example, you get on a bus and the bus driver is uh, taking a, a little bit different route than normal. It would be really unusual for everybody in the bus to just instantly and comfortably go to the bus driver and be like, I know this is your job and you've probably been doing this job for a while, but I really think it would be better if you took this route. Like, you know, at best, we would find somebody who did that as rude. And at worst, we might think that they were a bit of a sociopath <laughs> because it's not normal for us to criticize. It's not, it goes against social decorum. And there's some psychological drive behind that too. Like we want to be liked. We want to fit in all of us because we need to. It's actually a, a psychological necessity that we experience belongingness and mattering. If we don't feel like we fit in somewhere where we are welcome and accepted and we don't feel like we matter interpersonally to others, the result of that is hopelessness. We can't thrive. It's not possible. So we're kind of constantly like measuring what we do and how we do it and what we say and how we say it. That's just normal human behavior. Now you put this in a workplace environment, which is incredibly high stakes because there are outcomes that we're all trying to accomplish, often feeling under-resourced and overwhelmed and our ability to make a living could be at risk if we don't do it well. Impression management, trying to manage the impression that others have of us is always going to be top of mind in that environment. Psychological safety removes the need for impression management and allows for people to grow, <laughs> for us to learn, to improve, to get better, to have those uncomfortable, awkward conversations. Hey, you know, David, I really expect a lot out of you because I know what you're capable of. I've seen your potential and I believe you can reach it. And right now you're falling short and we need to talk about that. That's the kind of conversation that has to happen in a workplace for that workplace to get better for us to actually work towards our purpose, our vision, and achieve those things, we got to be able to have those productive, high-tension conversations. But they cannot be had productively if people feel psychologically unsafe. If that feels like a threat, if that feels like there's danger, if that feels like you're telling me this because I'm going to get in trouble and I might lose my job, that conversation's never going to go well. So, we have to cultivate that because it's not normal and it's not natural. Our natural state is self-preservation and self-protection. So in a workplace, we have to make it so that your normal amount of courage and bravery, your normal amount of drive and work ethic is enough to overcome your need to fit in. Mic drop. Just give me a minute to digest all of that. <laughs> It's just too much, yeah. Josh. It's just too amazing. Right. It's just it, incredible. Like, yeah, usually Andrea and I are like, boom, 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 because we've got immediate follow-up. But I will be honest, we're just- I'm like, like wait, wait, wait. Like, <laughs> wait a minute. Yeah, again. like, hold on, hold on. What what did he just say? Like, uh, my brain just like bit. had a seizure. Because <laughs> yeah. it's so good. This is not bad. This yes, is not shocking. It. It's just said in a way that is so incredibly eloquent and incredibly- detailed but also so effing spot on that's the other part yeah, of it <laughs> right. it's thanks for Thank sure. you. i think the challenge for us is just sort of realizing that this is something that doesn't happen on its own 
And so we're kind of always nurturing it. It's a generative process. Like it doesn't just happen and you're done. This is not a box that you or check off. Either. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, it's always building. And once you yeah. realize that, then you see that there are some very simple things that you can do that you can make a habit of doing that will make sure that you're maximizing that kind of thing. And when you do, it's amazing the results that happen, the conversations that happen, the growth and learning that happens, the productivity that happens. I mean, we know pretty conclusively that psychological safety is directly correlated with things like turnover, with errors and mistakes no longer happening at work, with uh, innovation, with creativity, with productivity, all of those kinds of things. Our data now shows that it actually also applies in veterinary medicine. We know that it correlates with a lot of the important outcomes in vet med too. You talk about how we can integrate some of this into kind of our daily life. And then, you know, we see the, the outcome from it. And, and there's a reason why I use the word, you know, cultivate culture is because mm -hmm. I always think of that as a garden, you know, our yeah. employees are a garden yeah. and we have to cultivate that and pull the weeds and add fertilizer and water it and do all these things. And I love we have that. this beautiful garden. It doesn't stay that way, right? We always have to be working on this. And sometimes it floods and our garden turns into a hot mess and we have to start all over yes. again, right? Yes, yes. But I get that. But there's this always this cultivate thing. So let's talk about then what are some of the things, what are these things that managers can integrate into having these thriving teams into cultivating? What is, you know, the watering and, and the fertilizer and pulling the weeds? And what are things that we can be doing as managers to integrate this philosophy into our practices? How do we make psychological safety? Yeah. How do we have these things happen in our practices? Yeah. I love that. I love that. That's such a wonderful question because you're right. Like, um, great. I am inspired. I'm compelled. I'm intellectually stimulated. I want this stuff. Yeah. I see the case. Right. How do I do it? Now what? And that's, yeah, now that, what? Yeah, yeah, that's really the catch, Andrea, because the truth is nobody's ever taught us this. <laughs> nobody's ever taught us. Uh, you know, I... Isn't that the truth? <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I, I was the same person. I, you know, for almost yeah. 10 years, I managed and owned veterinary hospitals and thought I was being a good leader. And I look back now and I'm, I'm a little bit embarrassed about what I thought was good leadership really truly wasn't. And in some ways I was actually unintentionally causing harm. I got to tell you, that kind of hurts my heart. But I also am able to have a little bit of self-compassion when I realize I didn't know any better. No one ever teaches us about this stuff. That's why Flourish exists. Like That's our mission. We want to be able to teach the profession. I want to answer your question with two very simple, maybe even to some folks might seem trite and trivial, but they're impactful and they're backed by data. I want to share a little bit of the results of our survey so that I can make a bit of the case before I share the, the two simple steps. Is that okay? Sure, of course. Awesome. Go. So in our survey, what we ended up doing was we had 16 individual questions that we asked people about their leaders' behaviors. We specifically wanted to focus on behaviors because behavior change, that's something we all have control over. And so if we can identify behaviors that seem to contribute to people wanting to stay at a veterinary practice, being happy, being committed in that work, feeling well-being at work. Well, by golly, we want to empower leaders with those behaviors. Like if you, as a leader, if you can do this, maybe your team will experience this too. We built the survey in a very particular way. Each of those 16 items was measured on a seven-point Likert scale. It was a seven-point scale that went from strongly disagree to strongly agree. So it would be statements like, you know, my leader does X. Strongly disagree, strongly agree, something in between. That particular scale was chosen on purpose because the middle item, what would equate to 
rating or scoring a four on that seven point scale was I neither agree or disagree. It's a neutral response. So in that way, we can take the data set and we can divide it out into three categories. People who say leadership here, according to these 16 behaviors, is neutral. It's not happening, but it's not not happening, right? Like, I, I don't really have an opinion about it. We could take that neutral part out and then we can say, okay, who are the people that said more often than not? So I slightly agree, I agree, or I strongly agree. Yes, my leaders do these positive leadership behaviors. And then on the opposite side, who are the people who said, mm, slightly disagree, disagree, or strongly disagree? No, my leaders don't do that. We took those two data sets and separated them out. By the way, it turned out to be almost a third, a third, and a third. It was very interesting oh, wow. to see. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, mm. like that. yeah. So now we've got people who say what we called our high positive leadership group. So they're saying, yes, these behaviors are happening in my hospital. Some of them were saying it happens all, a lot. Some of them were saying, eh, it happens, maybe not as much as it could, but it's happening. We called them our high positive leadership. People who said, nah, this stuff isn't really happening here. We called them our low positive leadership group. People who said low positive leadership, this stuff isn't happening. The average response to the question, how often do you consider quitting your job was a four out of five. Often. Ooh. I often consider quitting my job. Wow. Wow. People who yeah. said yeah. that these positive leadership behaviors were happening in their practice with some level mm -hmm. of frequency, their average response was a two out of five. Rarely. Mm. I rarely wow. consider quitting my job. Yep. Interestingly, that carried over wow. to leaving the profession. People with low mm. positive leadership in their practice said, I sometimes consider quitting the profession. People with high positive wow. leadership said, wow. I rarely yeah. consider quitting the profession. So oh, it, it seems pretty clear that these, yeah, these behaviors seem mm -hmm. to correlate pretty strongly with the kinds of outcomes that we're after. I, you know, I, sometimes I become a fan of like really cliche, like super kitschy kind of statements. One of the ones that I found myself using over and over and over again, especially since collecting this data is I think in veterinary medicine, retention is the new recruitment. I think that if we can just make in yeah. hospitals 100%. where people stay, 100%. yeah, if yep. people stay, yeah. they're going to get more efficient, more productive. It won't matter that we are, quote, shorthanded anymore. Our right. data seems to suggest that, listen, if you behave in these ways, you are far more likely to have a satisfied, engaged, committed, retained team, a team mm -hmm. that will stay there, not because they're getting a paycheck, but mm -hmm. because they like the work they do, they're get, it's benefiting right. their well-being. They enjoy being there. They're energized by the work. Okay. Right. So that's, well, that's the a bigger, <laughs> there's a bigger piece to that too. There's yeah. a dividend that you pay to the profession because I think what you're participating, I mean, I'm not too sure, but I would assume that your participants are probably conflating where they work and the profession as a whole, which is a human thing. There's a, I forgot yep. the cognitive bias, but it is, it is a bias. So when they are at a job, at a hospital, whatever it is, and they have poor positive leadership, they want to quit their job, their brain immediately says, this job is the world, right? It is the profession. Therefore, I'm going to leave. I'm not, I'm, I'm putting words in their mouth, but you can probably mm -hmm. bear this out in the data. And that's not surprising to me at all. So if you flip that switch and you have, you know, uh, hospitals that do employ positive leadership, of course, those people want to stay at that hospital and yeah. also see some 
light at the end of the tunnel or some positivity or yeah. some possibility in our profession as a in whole. In the profession, yes. Yeah. And so there's, there is a, a larger piece of thing. When we talk about this AHA, ABMA, all these groups talk about kind of like, you know, we're in this together, right? Like, and we have mm-hmm. to be helping each other to help the profession. Well, you can help yep. the profession by making sure that our teams feel connected, excited, engaged to their hospital, because then yes. they equate that with the profession, the profession. which in fact uh, it yes. is, right? I mean, the hospital 100%. is a microcosm of the profession. So 100%, 100%, whichever one it is. <laughs> yeah. You know, the human brain evolved to have a whole bunch of really, really great features. One of them, unfortunately, psychologists, you know, started framing these around this idea of bias and bias has become a pejorative word. A, a bias is not naturally pejorative. Some biases are harmful and bad, racial biases, things of that nature. But bias as as um as a phenomena is actually a feature of the human brain one of the biases that we have is what's called recency bias. Recency bias is one of the big reasons why I think annual performance reviews are horrible. Yeah. Uh, if that's the only time that you're sitting down and talking about Agreed. performance. Yeah, that's yes, right. David, what you're essentially tapping into and what you're saying is recency bias. If I am working in a workplace in veterinary medicine, a career that I've come to from some level of passion, excitement, enthusiasm, if I work in a workplace that is crappy, I start to think of the profession as crappy because my immediate Mm -hmm. experience is bad. Vis-a-vis, if I work in a workplace that is really good, that makes me feel engaged, committed, excited, vitalized, I'm going to start to think of the profession in that way as well. So yes, I think you're spot on. And I think that's what we're seeing in our data. So now to to go back to the original question that Andrea asked, which is what can Mm -hmm. we do? Okay. I wanted to make, I really wanted to hammer home the case of why I'm picking these things, because these are behaviors that really come out of our survey. So two things I'll share with you. The first one is along the lines of psychological safety. Psychological safety, what you really can think about it is it's someone on your team. It's your team entirely, but really it's an individual on the team feeling like I have a voice. Sometimes that means I have a vote, but not always. It just means that I have a voice that when I open my mouth and I share something, people stop and hear it without judgment. So how do you encourage voice? One of the simplest tools, I know that this is going to sound trite to people, but it really does work, is just get in the habit As a leader, you're the practice manager, you're the medical director, you're the hospital owner, you're the tech supervisor, you're sitting down and you're talking to somebody, hey, Andrea, you know, let's talk about how we set up the OR. So, you know, we go through this and we go through that. And I think that I'd like you to do X, Y, and Z. Get in the habit at the end of statements like that, the end of conversations like that, saying, asking a question, Andrea, what do you think? And then zipping your lips and listening to their response. That's it. Literally Mm -hmm. just asking people frequently, making it a habit. What do you think? And then genuinely getting curious to hear what they have to say. That creates psychological safety. We see it in our data. And psychological safety in particular of the four pillars was one of the strongest correlations to all of those outcomes, retention, job satisfaction, Mm -hmm. organizational commitment. Generally speaking, this is adopting the mindset of curiosity as a leader, but tactically, it's about finding those, like, what do you think? That is literally the easiest instant intervention that you can have as a leader. Mm -hmm. Just start Mm -hmm. asking people on your team, what do you think? And I mean, everybody, like Mm -hmm. the first day of a brand new employee, 
hey, let me walk you through. Let me introduce you to everybody. Let's go through the employee handbook. Here's some onboarding stuff. You're going to be working here today and doing this. This is what the rest of your week's going to look like. How do you think it's going to go for you this week? What do you think you're going to need? Like just asking a question like that over and over, repetitively making that a habit will change the culture of psychological safety. And then that's this, amazing. The second one that I always recommend when I lecture on this stuff, I'm you know out in conferences or working with practices and stuff, and I talk about these things. When we talk about the purpose pillar, I talk about the psychological construct of interpersonal mattering. And what I do is I ask people in the room, raise your hand if you agree with this statement. The people that work with me matter. And every time everybody raises their hand. I mean, when we really sit back and think about it, you know, we know that the people around us matter and we believe that. Yeah, exactly. The second question I ask them then, okay, great. Raise your hand if you agree with this statement. The work that they do every day matters. And instantly everybody's hands go up. Of course, we know that what we right. do in Better Nervous, yes. it matters, sure. it matters in meaningful, impactful ways. So then what I say to them is great. If that's true, if people matter, show them how. If the work they do matters, show them how. That's it. Like literally just every day, find an opportunity to show somebody you matter to me and here is why. Every single day, find an opportunity to show somebody on the team What you did just now in that exam room, in the OR, back in treatment, on the phone, it mattered. And here's how. That's it. Mm -hmm. That takes 30 Mm -hmm. seconds. Yeah. But that creates the experience of mattering. And it's not published research yet, but a colleague of mine, who's they're in the process of going through the, the peer review on this right now. What they find is that mattering accounts for almost half of the variance in people's response to things like, I do meaningful work. And meaningfulness, that experience of meaningfulness, not knowing that our work has a purpose, but feeling the purpose of the work in a Mm -hmm. moment, in an experience. Meaningfulness is one of the major contributors to workplace engagement, to professional fulfillment, and one of the best inoculations against burnout. So Mm. if we can help people see that they matter, and that the yeah. work that they do matters, they will feel the meaningfulness of their work and all of these mm-hmm. things will improve. Wow. So if we look at this with a slightly more negative lens, and I don't, I mean, I <laughs> it's think fine. That it's fine. No, no, we could go there. We could go there. Yeah, it's just useful, I think, to do this because sometimes it's harder to encapsulate the kind of cloud type of thinking and process. So let's flip this around. What are a couple of mistakes veterinary leaders make, Josh, and what the heck should they do about those? Yeah, I think probably one of the biggest mistakes, and this goes back to that original thing of like, you know, research is me search, because I made this mistake repetitively. As leaders, we think that we have our finger on the pulse. If we are not actively measuring the experience of our team, sometimes that means conducting surveys like what we've done. Sometimes that means bringing in people to help us get an understanding. Sometimes that means just having routine, candid conversations and developing the kind of psychological safety that allows people to be honest about their experience at work. The truth is, we don't know. We don't know. The higher up we get on the, on the ladder in an organization, the less likely we are to hear the truth. So we've got to seek it. We can't be complacent and think that we're sitting in our office and we know what people are thinking and feeling. We don't. We have to seek out that information. 
That is amazing. That's a great way to frame it. I think especially as we talk, we have on this podcast, people who oversee five direct reports and mm-hmm. a thousand or not a thousand, yeah. you know, but yeah. 500. Yeah. Right. Big difference, um, some yeah. of the people that come to mind are people we've had on the past that are chief operating officers of especially mm-hmm. hospitals that have 250 people. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. As we wrap up our episode, I'd like to ask you a piece of advice that you could share with our listeners today. It is worth going on. <laughs> it is always worth going on. I think probably yeah. one of the greatest lessons, it took me a long time to learn how to do. So I'm not, I'm not going to be so contrite and audacious to think that I offer this advice and everybody will just be able to take it and run with it. But I want to encourage you to at least lean into the potential that you can learn to forgive yourself and celebrate the best parts of who you are. None of us is perfect. None of us has everything. This complex puzzle that we're all trying to put together will require complex approaches that's not going to have one answer, one solution, or one person. Yeah, So yeah, 100%. give yourself permission to lean into the mess and stumble and get back up and be okay with it. Thank you. I appreciate that. So here comes my favorite part of the show where you get to share with us the most outrageous encounter that you've had either with a client or maybe an employee or, uh, you know, if you've been a practice owner, whatever it is, we're in the moment, like your chin hit the ground, your eyes pop out of your head, like a little pug and your palm hits your forehead and you're like, no shit, this just happened to me. (laughs) Tell me about your story. Okay. So I'm actually going to change facets of the story to sort of protect the we'll say yes, mild change names to protect the innocent. Mi- yes. Well, I'm going to say mildly innocent, but I, <laughs> uh, I did some work with a practice that was going through a big leadership transition and I was helping them in that transition. Now this practice had been in its community for a very long time and had a longstanding private ownership. So it, it was started by a woman veterinarian actually like I don't know, in the 1980s or something like that, which is a pretty big deal back then and had been in private ownership for a very, very long time. So from the community perspective, it was a staple in the community. Internally, the practice was really struggling, underperforming certainly financially, but environmentally, like it was just not a pleasant place to work. It was pretty toxic. And I think a lot of people felt oddly stuck there, not because of golden handcuffs, they were not paying their team very well at all, I honestly think that they had sort of like learned to be helpless and didn't really feel like they had any power to actually leave. And so kept coming back to this like awful environment. Right. So, yeah. So we're working with the, uh, you know, the medical director and primary owner of this hospital to try and kind of turn things around. And in talking to this gentleman about, you know, what the culture was currently like, what the practice was like, like one of the first things that gave me a bit of a red flag is he was really, really excited. Like one of the very first things that he wanted to show us, he was super excited to show us his, what did he call it? Uh, It was like a military kind of term. It was basically like a, like an adjunct employee manual. So they had their like employee manual, but what he had created was, so every time something would come up in the practice that put him off or upset him, or, you know, somebody was doing something wrong or screwing something up. have his own set of rules. Yes. He would write like a new SOP and the SOP, he would print it out. It was very, like he had a military background, so it was very militaristic. And the requirement was that it was posted in the break room and everybody on the team, there was a line 
for every person on the team where they had to sign that they had read it. And then he would take it wow. once. Yes. Once everybody had signed it, he would take this thing and he would three hole punch it and put it in a binder. And so he was so excited to show us yeah. this binder of the SOPs that he had built to make things better at his hospital and the binder, Andrea, I wish you could see like, cause I, what I'm showing you, it was like six inches thick. It was like popping out of oh this. Bi- goodness, like, yeah, wow. It was ridiculous. And they were all like avoidance. Themselves. Yeah, they were all and they were all like corrective things like you're screwing this up. And from now on, we're going to do it this way, this way, and this way. Right. So that was like red flag number one. So as we sort of gently, you know, approached, okay, so it sounds to me like, you know, what you're looking for is you're trying to build a team that's pretty enthusiastic about their work. You want to see more engagement, more accountability, those kinds of things. Let's talk about what kind of gets there. And as we started to sort of share our messaging with him, you could see this like look of consternation coming on his face. And as we talked about like (laughs) things like, yeah, things like autonomy and things like empowerment (laughs) and stuff like that, he literally said to me, I couldn't believe I was hearing that in this day and age. Well, I don't know, Josh. I mean, we can't let the prisoners run the prison. And I just, I know. And I'm like, I just don't even know what to say to you anymore. The fact that you think of you, like you literally refer to your employees. I like, I have a problem with the word staff. Yeah, me too. But he he wouldn't even use the word staff. It was, they were the prisoners. prisoners. Like, are you kidding me? (laughs) No wonder they felt like they couldn't leave. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was a shocking experience. Different kind of handcuffs. Yes, (laughs) exactly. Exactly. Wow. Crazy. Hey, Andrea here. Have you seen our social media pages? Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You can also find us on our website, www.positiveleaders.com. And if you like what you see there, be sure to give Rhonda and Linda a shout out over at Dog Days Consulting. They do all of our social media management. They even built our website. Those ladies can work some creative magic for your business and your brand. Check them out on Facebook at Dog Days Consulting or visit their website at www.dogdaysconsulting.com. So at this point in the show, we're going to go into the rapid fire. Tell me about your most epic failure that has left a lasting impact. It was my experience as a hospital owner and practice manager thinking that I was an excellent leader. Tell me about your proudest moment. When I got back up after my epic failure. Why veterinary medicine? What do you love our profession and what keeps you going in our profession versus going outside and bringing your positive psychology somewhere else? There are no better human beings than in the profession of veterinary medicine. How do you balance work and life and do you experience any work guilt in that balance? We take our well-being seriously. One of the ways we do that is taking breaks away from work. None of us will be available from these dates. What keeps you up at night, things that stress you out or cause you anxiety in your business? The transition that our organization is going through. What gets you up and out of bed in the morning? What excites you to start your day? People like you. Honestly, I really, truly mean that. David, Andrea, the people listening to this podcast, like I get to meet and work with and support and celebrate the most amazing human beings on the planet. I've never in my entire 45 years of life been so damn excited for Monday morning to come. What color best exemplifies you? I'm wearing a salmon-colored hoodie right now, so let's go with salmon. I don't have a good reason why. 
And if you were to pick any animal in the world that you think best fits your personality, which would that be and why? How about a honeybee? That's awesome. Josh, thank you so much thank for coming you. on. This is great. This has been, a, I mean, these are just like, these are the best top five yes. podcasts of the ones that we do. Oh. We love having you here. You know, happy holidays and have a great rest of the season. You too. Really appreciate you both so much. Thank you for inviting me back. For all the positive leaders listening out there, we hope you learned something to take back to your practice to put into use tomorrow. We want to hear from you, good, bad, and everything in between. So email us at positiveleaders at gmail.com. That's positive with a P-A-W. Want to hear about a specific topic on the podcast? Email us. Want to have your You Can't Make This Shit Up story featured? Email us. You can listen to us on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the Positive Leadership Podcast. And be sure to rate us. Check out our website at www.positiveleaders.com. That's positive with a P-A-W. And as always, catch us on all the socials. This is Andrea. And David. Signing off until next time. Stay happy and sane. The Positive Leadership Podcast is solely for informational purposes. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions provided in this podcast are general in nature, and such information, statements, comments, views, and opinions, and the receipt of this podcast by any listener are not intended to be and should not be construed as the provision of any business advice. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed or provided in this podcast, including by speakers and guests, are those of Andrea Crabtree, David Liss, and their guests only, may not be current, and do not represent the statements, comments, views, and opinions of any other person or business entity. Andrea Crabtree, David Liss, and or the Positive Leadership Podcast do not make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the information, statements, comments, views, or opinions contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage of any kind whatsoever, is expressly disclaimed.